0: This is an epic quest across an ancient, magical kingdom. As Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Polish Myth. This is Polish Schmidt. And thank you for listening. Chapter thirty-seven: The Chiraclo. As the caravan left the five corners, they were silent. Even Ariaku was quiet riding Silvern alongside Uma as she drove her team. For everywhere they looked, the land was dead. Nights before, Ogadai described it for them. How the great herds of lopes lived wild along these foothills, and little rock pools were plentiful. There were so many watering holes everywhere one went, they were nameless. There was always enough to share, and never once did one go hungry so Ogadai said. But all this was changed. The only rock pool they saw was under heavy Yang guard, and they had to pay for access. The lope herds counted forward only the beasts who'd gone without water for the longest. They couldn't afford to water the whole skulk. Even a few days' travel outside Tintern, the situation was no better. But at least there were no witnesses, as they buried Dap and friends. Oriaku said words over the bodies, and then they let the Gila hawks pick the bones clean outside their camp. They collected the bones afterwards, slowly burying them in their wake as they crossed the lifeless dunes, and the sands gnawed under everything the hawks left. It troubled Elora how quickly a breathing body became bone, became sand. These ghosts all around us, From mothers of all nations, she thought. You walked along and didn't even know whose ghost you were walking through. Lalora watched her own children play alongside the carts, teasing each other, laughing and dancing. And then she looked away. The prickling you felt sometimes, she thought. That odd feeling of it's all having happened before, or having been here before, Maybe that was just walking through someone else's memories, someone else's dreams. As soon enough, unknown wanderers might drift through her own. Ogo, come here, she said, finding some reason to scold him, just so she could carry him and hold her little boy close for just a while longer. The clothing and bloody windings they burned at nightfire fire. A hawks drifted overhead. The birds followed them after that, like ashes. Chapter 38 Nor The harem queens paraded into the arena to the wild, jubilant screams of the people of Chalice. The very poorest, pressed together, so far up above the well of the arena that, when he looked up, Nor could barely make out their faces. The dark holes of their screaming eyes and mouths, their bodies flailing joyfully against one another, like leaves in a summer storm, they pushed and shoved, frantic for a better glimpse of the glamorous queens howling down the names of their favorites, of their homelands. As Nor watched, one fell, and tumbled down, was let to fall, end over end through the crowd, taking down others with them until the knot of bodies landed together on one of the terraces, and he could see it no more. Nejmi slipped closer, taking his hand tightly. They followed their mothers to the royal terrace, which held pride of place and the best view. It was directly above the platform where the royal Chiriclo executioners stood between enormous staffs heavily winged with scalps. After a delicious pause, the king finally, slowly, began to enter the arena. The people of Chalice went mad as they each saw him, turning onto their feet and screaming with such love that Nor felt it boom in his own jaws, his heart, his very bones, Weir Rothwell lifted him overhead so he could see, as his father strode proudly, raising his arms and his face to receive their adulation. He wore a pitch black, massive cloak made of gleaming featherweight lizard skins. It lifted grandly behind him, as if King Tensing had tamed the night itself. Flanked by generals and his oligarch, the king made a full circle. Parading around the entire arena, and only then did he take his seat. Servants brought them milk and roasted meats as musicians, mock fights, and clowns settled into place below them, each knot of performers slowly revolving across the wide arena while the people of Chalice took their first meal together. The poor ate what they'd brought in their pockets while the well favored dined on splendors. I'm not hungry. Take it away, Norah said. His attendant bowed. Yes, your highness. Take mine too, Nejmi said. But please, boy, give it to someone who is hungry. One of those up there. It will be done, the attendant said. Oh, look, that catling has blue eyes, Nejmi said. The animal being spurred out of the gates was white as snow. And then came three more just like it. They were all snarling with hunger. And as various beasts from across the kingdom were prodded into the arena, the white catlings fell on them, tearing them all to pieces while the crowd yelled and cheered. Next, the executioner shoved a series of thieves down into the pit of seething animals, and bowmen shot arrows at the thieves' feet, making them run toward the catlings, who leapt up and pulled them asunder. Next came the reenactment of the myths. The crimes of the damned were called out as, one by one, they met their ignoble fates. An arsonist was tied to the tails of two catlings, as in the beloved tale of the fire-breather, just as in the children's tale. Soon all three were pulled dead. A brawler whose distemper, the farmers avowed, ruinously fouled their marketplace, was tied to the tail of another frothing catling, A pederast's eyes were picked blind by birds. When that was done, the surviving animals were executed by the bowmen and dragged out by rope to roast in the massive fire pits outside the arena and fed to the poor. Cowan of the tanners for defamation of the proud caste of tanners. Jeers and boos, rotten food thrown, the man was seated before the executioner who knelt before him. He brushed aside the man Cowan's cloak, exposing his strong, bare legs. The executioner looked up at the man. Choose, he said. Cowan's chest rose and fell rapidly. He swallowed, pointing, finally, to his left leg. The executioner held up an oiled stone blade for royal review. The blade was sharply wetted gleaming as if with intelligence in the hot sun. And now, too, was the executioner, for the day was hot. King Tensing gave his nod, and the executioner shaved the skin of Cowan's lower left leg away. It came free in wet curls, exposing bright flesh which immediately wept blood. Cowan the defamer screamed and begged, but held tightly to his chair and bore his pain, praying loudly for the king's mercy. Finally, the executioner finished his task, and the naked red flesh of Cowan's leg shone awful and wet. The executioner looked up from his work. It was now for King Tensing to decide whether the defamer had suffered enough, or if he should be put to death. The king looked out over his crowd, asking them with a shrug. My people, what would you have me do? Surely the man regrets his crime, he laughed merrily. I assure you he regrets it, sire, said the executioner, to laughter and applause. The king raised both his hands in amnesty, and the man was let to limp away. Quickly, quickly, the executioner said, before he changes his mind. The man hopped away frantically. He'd just ducked into the exit when a great cartload of rotted skins was lobbed down at him by the jeering tanners. Now came men and women of skilled combat, flooding into the arena to display their great talents, bloodlessly, recruiting future soldiers down from the arena. The audience began to mill about, furtively making water, buying and selling food, collecting bets. Finally, The great drums began to beat, and the king sat up. Two massive, great tusked beasts, all covered in long, wiry hair, lumbered slowly into the arena, chained to a massive spiked barge on wheels. The spikes were the trunks of trees and saplings, each one oiled and sharpened to fang point. The drivers boxed the beasts towards the royal terrace, and there they loosed the animals' chains, setting them free to lumber about in the arena for the audience to admire. The Chiriclo executioner bowed to King Tensing, and then strode down the stairs of his platform towards the barge. With a swirl of hands, he stood up on his toes and gingerly reached up to touch one of its shorter spikes. The audience gasped... The executioner jolted back, smiling, and held up his bleeding hand for all to see. Very good! Very sharp! Father laughed down scornfully. With great pomp and circumstance, the executioner went on revolving, turning so all the crowd could see the blood wetting down his wrist. Nor watched his father. Never in his life had he seen the king so uncomposed... Sloshing milk from the sides of his chalice, listing about drunkenly on the throne, milk ran down his long black beard, spilling over the sides of the great ceremonial cup. On this day, it was the Lampesis and Blodwen queens, and not Nejma, who were arranged about King Tensing. Filling his chalice with more milk, laughing up in the direction of the lesser Chiriclo and Jungle Queens who were stationed above them, farther up into the audience. Catling dragged out your tongues, lady loves, Blodwyn said. Where are your bird cries now? The women were silent, their heads bowed for Altia. Nora studied all this and felt a familiar hand on his shoulder. He looked up. where Weirothbough knelt heavily beside Nora's seat. Do not be sad, Highness. Those who scorn the gifts of Godx are irrelevant. What you see today is the fate of one who does not accept the gifts of Godx. Enter Altia," said the king, slurring. Enter her! The disgraced Chiriclo queen was brought into the arena. She sat naked astride a lope, her wrists tied behind her back. Altia's long, dark hair fell to her waist like a veil of night behind her, and she held her head high, her dark eyes proud and unflinching. She was an excellent rider, balancing with almost perfect stillness as the lope walked to the platform where she would die. The executioner bowed to the king. In response, the king only flitted his hand. She dies, if the Executioner sorrowed to escort one of his own tribe to death, he hid it well. He helped Altea down from her lope, and then guided her up to the edge of the platform above the spikes. Look upon your death, Altea of the Chiraclo. Those who argue their fates meet ignoble ends. All hail the king, said the Executioner. The audience roared, All hail the king! But, as Altea leapt, She went limp. Upon her impaling, her flesh did not seize, but only sank, and nor understood this display, was also a nested truth, that the disgraced Altier was dead before she left. She must have been given something beforehand, a quick poison to crunch in her teeth, and that this mercy, too, was decreed by his father, just as was her terrible death. This was what it meant to be loved by the king. The crowd booed, and the show was over. Chapter 39 Uma, the Well of Skulls. Formations of stone hulked up out of the sand like great beasts. Uma and were remarked on them each as if they were clouds. Until, finally, the heat made them fall silent. Enuma realized the naming had made her less afraid. She started up their game again. A catling on her back, do you see it? And that one, Oriaku said. Half lope, half lizard. I see it, she said. But her tongue felt huge in her mouth with thirst. Nanaline lay asleep behind her, the soft whistling of her sour breath mingling with the narcotic rhythm of the loaves and silver and soft spreading tread across the pathless desert. As though they were crossing a great ocean in a dream, one with waters made from some other crumbled world, and here be monsters. Yet, always, they followed Ogodai on his unerring way. Ogodai held the whole of Tensing's kingdom in his head, as if their way were marked within the walls of his littlest finger. He seemed to know the location of every village, township, and well where any trade could be had. They passed another crude altar to Goddix, its myriad faces staring out in all directions. It had no arms, no sculptured garment, only the thousand faces, carved like petals on a dry, dawn-colored bough. Uriaku leaned down to Uma. "'I know this place,' he said. "'You must be careful here, Uma. "'Don't let them see you, under any circumstance. "'This is an old village with old ways. "'Draw up your cloak. "'The women here cover themselves. "'As long as they can't see the color of your skin or your teeth, "'you'll be safe. "'They'll not take a second look at a covered woman.' Uma saw thick wreaths of smoke drifting apart in the air ahead of them. But of the approaching village, there was no other sign. She nodded and drew up her hood, tugging it forward so that she was hidden in its depths. When traveling, Uma always still wore her black, yang-style cloak, though it was embroidered now with chiriclo ways. She only ever wore her scarlet cloak when she was inside her wagon, holding a healing. Ahead of her, she saw Fern and Laura do the same, although they did not pull their hoods up quite so far. Now, so long as Uma kept her glance down, not even her chin was visible. Oriaku jumped down from Silvern and took up the reins. Gradually, the village began to form itself out of the stones around them. At first, the houses were difficult for Uma to see, especially from within the hot tunnel of her hood. They were domes made of sand, packed together with clay, hair, and dung. In wealthier villages, each dome would be roofed with great sheaves of river reeds, but the people here composed theirs of desert branches. If it were not for the cooking fires whose smoke rose through the bramble canopies, the little village would be nearly invisible. A cloaked figure darted out between two domes, like the shadow of a bird. Seeing one, Uma began to see others. The men did not all have their hoods up, and she saw their cheekbones were wider and rounder than the people of Tintern. Their long, narrow eyes were half-veiled in epicanthic folds, and their glossy black hair was dimmed somewhat by the blowing dust. Some of them wore their hair in braids, each wrapped in fabric the color of the scrub dunes all around them. They're dark like me. Almost blue, Uma said, startled. Ariaku didn't look at her. Sure enough, the deepness to the men's skin possessed the telltale evening's tones, visible in the creases of hands, eyes, necks. Their ancestors could have only been full-blood Wutar. Yes, Ariaku said softly. That's why they hate you. And it's why the women are covered, Uma marveled so that they don't turn dark, like me. One of the black-cloaked men approached Ogadai's wagon ahead of them, and their procession stopped. Hail, chiriklo he said. The speaker was wide-shouldered and stout. Smiling and fierce-eyed, his hair was the thin stubble of a weary old man, but the surety of his walk and his thrown back shoulders seemed to belong to a man in his prime. He took hold of one of Ogadai's lobes, and Uma heard the jingle as the animal shook its head away. The man lifted his face. Who approaches the well of skulls? Chapter 40 Nor Reasons Nor loved Nejmi. The way she was black-golden all over. Every crease of her body held shifting blue tone like the deepening of dust. As if Najmi's body itself were a cathedral of days, of seasons, of darkness, light, darkness, holding every potential of the world. Najmi was so strong and fast no one could catch her or hold her whenever she took a mind to run. And often, she did. Of all Tensing's children, she was the fastest, cleverest, and most indifferent to rules. He loved her sweet, playful shrieks as they chased each other across the mist gardens, their mothers laughing in the shade as if they were still children themselves. Nejmi could sing like a bird and hiss like a lizard. She could run faster than any catling. In Noor's mind, they truly shape-shifted together as they ran, seizing each other tumbling into one another like fawns, tumbling apart again like eels, panting and alive in the glorious soft grass. He loved the way Nejmi's hands moved up his thigh, playfully, as dark and cool as leaves. He loved her hair and its long woolly locks, the layers of ringlets all down each one like tiny flowers, jeweled with mist. He loved Nejmi's kindness. She was forever rescuing insects, rushing out of their daily lessons to free whatever she just caught in her hands. It was for Nezmi's purity of heart that the other royal children most hated her, just as their mothers hated her mother. But the tender dreaminess of Nezmi, Nor wanted only to shield, to never see it ravaged by the outer world. All this as prelude to her true spell. For Nejmi was magic. The glorious thrall she held over Nor was the same that her mother, Nejma, cast across the king. It was unwritten, unsaid, unopposed. She was most beloved. My treasure, the king called Nejma. And in his dreams, this is what Nor also called Nejmi, He did not know how to imagine what came after those whispered words. In a misty sort of way, he understood it would involve a sliding, swelling pleasure, the rising carpets of salt river mist curling into a shared room, making ringlets about their heads and bodies as his almost unbearable attraction to her burst into warm relief. For all these reasons, nor flung himself across Nezmi so she would not see or hear the execution of the disgraced Chiricloque queen, Altea. And in so doing, he disappointed both their oligarchs and made his mother's eyes flood with hot tears. The king saw, but did not deign to look. His handsome face was already taut with cruelty. Now it hardened. It was as if King Tensing's ornamented body was one of those deep-water fish that sometimes washed ashore the river banks, All beak and teeth and uncharitable staring, the long, ash-black eyes fixed upon the woman Altea, who lay small and dead and torn open in the arena. Nor held weeping Nejmi, and would not be parted from her, even as they were carried in shame from the auditorium. Years later, as a cadet, nor would attack a beautiful, darkly glimmering girl from the Cloud Abbey, repeating to the soft universe of her body what was done to the disgraced Queen Altea in the arena, hating her, because she looked like his Nejmi, because she was not Nezmi. For by then, Nezmi lay dead, by Nor's own hands. Chapter Forty One, Nor, the Hunt. It was a perfect, crystalline day, with air the same color Nor imagined as the holy stones in the mouths of the priestesses, where Rothwell said a prayer along the river bank as the harem children gathered in before him, bowing their heads. In the name of Godx, mother, father of our nation, guide us, protect us, and long may we reign. Amen. Amen. Morning's feast was cleared away, and they mounted up in pairs for the hunt. The Lampises' brothers rode double, and Nezmi and Noor paired together as usual. Nor rode pillion, their hunting bow sheathed in the big scabbard slung across his back. Nejmi held the rain clubs to guide their lizard, because her oligarch insisted. But she never used them. It's all in the hips, she liked to say, gleefully. Lizards could never be entirely trusted. But Nejmi was one of the finest natural riders the palace had ever seen. As they set out, Nor rested his hands on her swaying hips tracing his thumbs slowly up and down the gentle swells of Najmi's strong young body. She sighed, pressing back into him. Nora leaned forward slightly and gently bit the soft lobe of her ear. They'll know we are in love, Najmi said. Then they will be happy for us, Nora said, letting his breath tickle her neck. Her ear flushed pink and he smiled. Behind them, Castrol Blodwyn rode alone. Irritatingly capable, Castrol was the only child in the harem, strong and powerful enough to ride a lizard alone and shoot at the same time. Adorned in five corners bandit style, she wore sharpened tusks lashed to the toes of her boots to steer her great black lizard. Nor angled himself away so he wouldn't have to see Castrol. He wanted to focus on Nejmi, leaning back into him. He was almost faint with pleasure. Some day I'll visit Palmstone and think you are around every corner, Nezmi said. That healing oil you wear, the scent is beautiful. Oh, forgive me. Surely you would rather smell the river, he said. Not at all, she said. The river only smells of villagers. Nora lifted off his amulet and placed it gently around Nezmi's neck. It was filled with precious Palmstone oil from the town of his mother's birth. His mother, Devi, used it for everything from scraped knees to heartsickness. Blessings be upon you, he said. Nezmi covered Noor's hand with her own, smiling gently. I accept. All that I ask of this world, he said, is that I may be king of your pleasures. And Nezmi turned to him, smiling, but he would never know what she meant to say. An arrow shot through Noor's long hair whistling away all the mornings of the world. Chapter 42 Ariaku. After the invitation to trade was given, the clothes set about making camp and night fire outside the well of skulls, while the villagers crept about cautiously. The women seemed featureless within their great swinging cloaks, except for the beautiful crescents of their wondering smiles as they admired the travelers' wares. "Pretties," Toulouse said, booming far more than was necessary. "Pretties and luckies." Tinctures for every malady and madness known to the far corners of these singing sands. Come one, come all, step right up, ladies, don't be afraid. Touch, taste, smell, I won't bite. Nervous laughter rang out as the women and children dared closer, like hungry birds. Their husbands stood with their arms crossed, fierce yet cautious, and clearly not wanting to smile. One young man strode up boldly to Tulu. My family has nothing to pay you, but we would be glad to host you and your friends at our smoke bath tonight in return for this beautiful oil. Very beautiful it is, Tulu said, and began to declaim the thousand merits of priceless fang oil. But suddenly, Oryaku reached up and gently took his arm. Tulu looked at him. Oryaku had never interrupted his pitch before. Yes, friend, he said. The smoke baths are very special, Ariaku said. The Yang Man beamed down at Ariaku uncertainly. He paused, as if unsure whether to address the legless Oddity directly, or to continue speaking to Tolu. You know of us, then. Oh yes, the well of skulls is famed across Tensingland, Ariaku said, shifting on his hands. He did a merry flip and the village man covered his mouth in wonderment. For those who know. Tulu laughed. Well, my friend, share on. Ariaku danced from one hand to the next, and as he spoke, he leapt up and clapped between each step so that his words made a merry beat. The people gathered round him, and soon they were clapping in time, too. In the merry smoke baths, the yang all reap, the dreamtime lights— where the smoke is sweet and the seeds burn bright, and the smoke is sweet on that hot stone heat, the dream time comes as fast hearts beat. Yes, yes, you must come and enjoy with my family, the young man said to Tulu joyfully. Tulu glanced down at Ariaku, who smiled hopefully, shining with heat from his wild little dance. All right it is, brothers. Lead the way. To lose Chapter 43 Nor, the Hunter. The arrow was Kestrel's. It burst through Nor's hair, its wake cold as a wetted blade, and crashed into the sand directly in front of them. Their lizard scrabbled wild, and Nejmi dropped her guide sticks. She screamed, reaching back for Nor, Don't fall! But Nor saw the dung-poisoned blade as it whistled past them. Dipping arrows in Micmac was forbidden except in war. And already he was not falling, but flying. As Nor leapt, he drew his bow and jabbed the end of it hard into the neck of their lizard, turning the huge reptile back towards Kestrel. And Kestrel was still coming. She was crashing towards them along the riverbank. "'smashing through vendor stalls "'and straight through people washing their garments "'and offering flowers to Goddix. "'A blind woman washing a soldier's hair in the river "'became confused in the commotion "'and ran the wrong way, directly towards her. "'Kestrel rampaged her lizard straight over the woman. "'Time circled, paused, "'and Nor saw it all as one instant. "'The steady beat of his heart and the oncoming beast. Kestrel sliding down sideways on her mount so that Noor could see nothing of her any longer but the tusked soles of her boots. Kestrel took aim beneath the creature's leathery bobbing neck, but Noor held aim of Kestrel too. He sank into focus, exhaled, pulled. It was as if a mountain crumbled and then slid down along the gritty riverbank. So, as Kestrel's lizard fell to the ground, with Nor's arrow quavering up through one eye, dead. Nor ran towards it, stood atop the monstrous dead thing as Kestrel still scrabbled beneath it, alive and desperate to reach her blade. But Nor was already stabbing Kestrel with the arrow in his hands, her eyes, cheeks, throat, what was Kestrel shredded into scarlet and then a foaming pink with brilliant bright shocks of exposed and splintering bone the arrow broke away but nor did not stop he went on savaging nejmi's would-be killer with the wet pulped wood of his broken arrow and when that was gone he used his fist hammering her into irrelevancy nor what have you done nejmi said suddenly it was over and he was shaking in her arms letting her hold him a stub of wood fell from of Nor's fist into the sand. I did it for you, Noor said, numbly. The blood was still pounding in his head. I'd do it again, he thought, and again and again. And at that moment, the paths of their minds, which had always been united, began to branch and divide. Somehow after that, it was always as though they spoke opposing languages. She was just hunting. She wasn't hunting you, Neshmi said. Nor was tired, confused. It was as if he were saying, Power, strength, control, trust no one but me. And Neshmi said, River dawn, bird cries, I don't know how to love you. Their oligarchs came rushing in, having waited just long enough. Nor noted. But Weir Rothwau and the villagers spoke for Noor at his brief trial in the arena. Together, they remembered the murdered blind woman in the water. The villagers said she'd gone on living for entire moments after her trampling, and so they carried her to the riverbank so that in her last moments she would not be eaten by eels. And the dying woman began to sing how one day Nor would be king. Yes, it was true, and all the while, Kestrel had run her lizard straight through royal property all along the river bank. It was a brief trial. Nor was declared innocent, and Kestrel's queen mother, Blodwin, was escorted back to her origin village, somewhere in the scrublands outside the Five Corners. And there were no more mornings for Nor in the gardens with Neshmi. Chapter 43. Ariaku The Smoke Baths The three domes that housed the smoke baths were just outside the village, each one plumed with smoke. In the blinding white light of the desert, the smoke seemed like veils rising, and the sweetness of the air was intoxicating. As Ariaku and Tulu followed their new host, Arat, who strode proudly before them. Arayaku saw a woman gathering around the opening of the middle-sized dome. The smallest of domes was set back from the first two, and no smoke was rising out. Perhaps that one is for the children, Arayaku thought. Have you ever done this before? Tulu said to him quietly. I've always wanted to, Arayaku said. Happiness welled up in his heart. He couldn't keep himself from grinning like a child. The sand was hot and gritty with sharp rocks he felt even through his calloused palms, but Oryaku fairly danced over it. I would never have guessed, Tolu said. Watch, when we go inside, there'll be burning flower seeds on the hot stones around the fires, Oryaku said excitedly. It causes an ecstasy. They all rise up and sing and dance. It's how the Yang prefer to bathe. To sweat is cleansing and the special flower seeds they use only grow around here. I don't think they've ever revealed their source. Tulu smiled. And I don't think they'll let you have any either, so don't even try, Ariaku said, knowing, as he did, exactly how to engage Tulu. They're sacred, he said. A challenge, Tulu said. A rat strode into the largest dome, and the two Chiriclo followed into a blast of dry heat so intense the men found it difficult to draw breath. Just focus on breathing out, Eret said kindly, and try to relax. It begins to happen naturally. The smooth interior formed a perfect globe above them, and a great spinal column of flame rose from the center of the earthen floor. The fire was enormous. The walls of the dome were lined with seated village men of all ages, all of them nude, gleaming, and flushed with the heat. As Tolu and Ariaku watched, the younger men fed the flames, now with kindling, now with precious water on the stones outside it, so that mists heaved into the air. And on a series of flat, embellished stones outside the fire, Tolu saw the flower seed sizzling, just as Ariaku had described. Their scent was faint, but powerful, a green-leaf, resinous haze that made Tulu smile, dazed instantly with more than just the stupendous heat. Errat removed his cloak and turned to them, smiling. "'Join us,' he said, indicating Toulouse was to disrobe, and Tulu did. Then the seated men looked up, noticing the tall, golden Chiriclo man behind Errat for the first time. Some half-rose in surprise— and then they stood in fury. They began to shout, flailing their hands as if a dirty animal had entered their sacred space and was to be chased out. Tulu picked up Ariaku and rushed backwards. Ariaku swept up their cloaks from the floor as they did, and they began to dress hurriedly outside the dome and would have strode angrily back to their camp but for Arad running out behind them. My friends, wait, wait, he said. Tulu turned to him coldly. Clearly we are not welcome here, Arat. Be still, a voice commanded behind them. It came from within the dome, speaking to the angry men still inside it. Would you have no one come to our village any longer? Without bees, the flowers will starve. Please, Arat said softly to Talu, Forgive. Let us try again. It will be all right. He is master of this ceremony. If he says it must be so, all will be well. Inside, the village men were uneasily returning to their seats, like a buzzing, unsettled hive. Forgive me, Eret said to Talu quietly as they came back towards the door. He put his hand to his heart. But your man... Eret shook his head down at Ariaku. He cannot come in. He is unclean. This is a sacred space. He would have to be burnt and purified with his own ashes. Uriaku's heart fell. Let me down, he said, hitting at Tolu's arms. His voice twisted horribly. Immediately, Tolu put him down, and Uriaku moved behind him. He was ashamed and frightened, too. Never had being without his legs made Uriaku feel so small. We will go, Tolu said angrily. He knew his friend's downcast face was wet with tears. This place is not for us. Be still, Eret, the master of ceremonies said. His voice again rang with command. Eret swiftly joined the others on the mud bench and was silent. The master of ceremonies stood and gravely put his hand across his heart. I beseech you, both, to join us. It is our honor to host you, both of you. We thank you for coming to see our village. One of the seeds popped on the hot stones, and then another. Behind Tolu, Oryaku shook his head. It must be a trick. Anyway, his head felt swollen with the terrible heat, and much worse, the awful shame. If they'd not been in public, he would have tugged at Tolu's cloak like a hot-faced child and hidden behind it. At that moment, all he wanted was to disappear. Your invitation is a kindness, but we remain insulted, Tulu said. The man bowed. Instruct me how to make this right. Oryaku, the decision is yours, Tulu said. Oryaku, the master of ceremonies said, bowing more deeply still. I am called Hala. It would be my honor if you would join us. Sit beside me and tell me the story of your life. It has always been my dream to travel, yet my responsibilities lie here, with my people, and there is much I have not seen. The men gaped at Hala. Ariaku studied him. The man was younger than he'd seemed initially. His air of command, authority, and certainty was so powerful that his youth seemed irrelevant. But as they studied one another... Arayaku saw how Hala's eyes gleamed with a yearning he understood. Clearly, Hala longed for adventures, for a lighter load. But Arayaku also saw how, without Hala's leadership, a village in such a vulnerable spot might starve or be attacked. Hala smiled warmly. Arayaku nodded. Thank you. I accept. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you so much for listening. I'm coming to you from gorgeous summertime Denver, Colorado. And you know, it's still pretty loud here. So once again, I'm not recording in the bus, but I'm in my magical sister-in-law, Psychedelicious Lex's bedroom closet. But this time, I'm holding my pop filter up in front of my iPhone like a weirdo, which I am, so that's okay, but hopefully it will help with some of the plosives. Anyway, dude, I love Araiku. I loved writing these particular threads braiding through this episode. And next week's episode, I can't wait for you to have it come to live in your mind also. As you know, I'm posting weekly or thereabouts. So please do subscribe on both iTunes and via eveningskingdom.com. I'll send you a note each time a new episode is out so you never miss the show. Meanwhile, if you liked this episode, please let me know. Once you're subscribed on iTunes, it's either a big button that says subscribe or a gray check mark, I believe, depending on the version of iTunes you have. Anyway, once you're subscribed, howsoever you are inclined, please just scroll down to leave your review. I'm reading my favorites out loud here to share with all of you. And of course, if you're short on time, but you approve of this episode, just tap five stars and I will dance for joy. I really will. I got some really sweet words in this last week, and you guys, it feels really good. Thank you so much. Baby Dave 89 says, wow, (laughs) I just discovered this podcast and I'm hooked. Can't wait till next week. Paula has a gift for storytelling. (laughs) And then he says, rising star. Dude, thank you so much. And you know, this goes for all of you guys. The version of the story coming alive in your head as you listen in is all you. KBC 79 says many lovely things. Pure magic. The story of this enchanting land and its inhabitants is such a delight. And KBC likes my voice. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I'm so happy you're enjoying it. And... I want to keep this story the central focus, but I have to admit something to you guys. I felt really weird about my voice for a long time. So I am pretty shy, and when I was growing up, I was really shy. I mean, like, could hardly look at people shy. And this beloved of mine, my high school sweetheart, we had a lot of incredible, really important times, but we ended badly. Although, to be fair, I don't know that you can necessarily end things well when you love each other, but the good journey has run its course. Um, it was good we parted, but it's funny what stays with you, and during the fires of hell, which were our demise, he made fun of my voice, and how much I love books, and what can you do about your voice, if you're shy, and self-conscious, and as young as I was, you might stop using it. And for a while, I did for a long time. You know, it was hard to talk, and that would just sort of censor myself. But you jerk. F you. I love books, and goddamn cultures rise and fall to the stories we tell ourselves. Stories are amazing. Stories are everything. So I'm going to keep trying to make it as a writer until the day I die. I have long forgiven him, deeply, and I'm fairly sure he knows that. But words can hurt, especially when you love words, and I will never forget those particular daggers. But you know what? I'm doing this anyway, and I hope it helps somebody out there. Okay, anyway, thank you. (laughs) Forwards ever, backwards never, except not. I have a peripatetic mind, and that is just how it is. Shake and beg, C-H-S, lovies, I think you know which unicorn friend of mine this is. Baker writes to say best new sci-fi fantasy podcast amazing world and characters and a suspenseful storyline that I cannot wait to follow each week (laughs) you sweetheart thank you so much so I'm happy it's a Saturday afternoon and after I record episode six I'm going to go work on book three which is quite a mess if anyone wants to be me some love please stop by eveningskingdom.com. There's a tab that says, Liking the Show? Buy Paula a coffee. Your support really helps. It buys me time to write book three, which is nowhere near finished. Record the first duology and edit. I love doing this, but each episode takes, as you can imagine, a crazy amount of time. I have a day job, so anything to help me hold time for this really helps. If you click, buy me a coffee, there's an option to send a little monthly donation via the membership tab. So someone wrote in to show me that it's kind of weird. And thank you. When you click, it's going to act like you can do the membership option either with PayPal or with your card. But in fact, for the membership option, you can only do it through PayPal. So I hope you know your password. I'm not sure where mine is, to be honest. If you think there's some other kind of tip jar thing I should try out, please let me know. I'm not offended. Um, however, there is an option, if you don't know your PayPal password or don't want one, uh, there's an option to just support, which is uh, like a one-time tip via card or PayPal. Just click support instead of membership. And seriously, I mean, I'm geeked out a bit that you're even listening to this. So thank you. You can also help a lot by sharing the podcast with friends especially literary agents if you happen to know one, and of course anyone you think might like it. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Subscribe and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.